Well, we do turn back to our study of the Gospel of Matthew this week. And as a way of introduction, just a few comments. For as long as Christianity has existed, there has also been persecution against Christians, even of Christ himself. And as we consider this morning the topic of persecution, we're going to talk about this today. Uh, The question I think for us to begin with is, what is persecution? The Oxford English Dictionary defines persecution as hostility or ill treatment, especially because of political or religious belief. Sometimes persecution consists of verbal attacks when people just say things to you. Other times it can be the deprivation of rights and privileges or even financial or legal mistreatment when people persecute you and take what belongs to you. Other times it can come in the form of physical abuse and even death, martyrdom as we know it. Now there are times when a person is mistreated because of sinful or ungodly behavior. And I want to clarify that when that happens, when you're mistreated because of sinful behavior or your ungodly behavior, that is not persecution, however. That is merely retribution or possibly even retaliation. That's eye for an eye. If you're mean to somebody and they're mean back, you're not being persecuted. You're getting what you essentially deserve. If I kick the neighbor's dog, I can't claim persecution when he comes back over to my house and tries to kick me. In fact, the Apostle Peter addresses this in chapter 4 of his first epistle. He says this, If persecution comes, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. I always sort of facepalm when I see a Christian with a genuine complaint of wrongdoing. They have a leg to stand on with something that's happened to them. But then they turn around in their pride and their arrogance and their ego and they shoot themselves in the foot by sinning against their opponent. It it always undoes everything that they would otherwise stand for in righteous uh, receipt of persecution. If you're wronged, there's a certain way to act in response to being wronged. We're not allowed to sin in our anger or in our retaliation. So you've not just lost... Uh, the, the battle itself, but you've lost any and all genuine virtue and righteousness in your cause. You've now gone from being wrongly persecuted to justly punished for your efforts in, in efforts to retaliate. However, going back to our original point of discussion, when a person suffers simply for being a Christian or taking a stand for righteousness in Christ... Peter says, you're actually blessed. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's what he says. He goes on to say, he writes, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. That's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. So what are we to do when we are persecuted for the cause of Christ? How are we to conduct ourselves? Because this topic has been coming up more and more lately. I've heard a lot of discussion about persecution, especially in light of current events, and not just in our country, but other parts of the world as well. You go to the Middle East right now, I mean, it is literally illegal to be a Christian, and they are going house to house, tracking Christians down to put them to death. 
This has always happened in the history of the world, but now we're seeing the increasing nature of persecution. And people ask the question, and I want to equip you and arm you with this text of Scripture this morning. It is providential that we're here when we are here by the grace of God, but I want to help you to think through this topic with me. And so in today's text, we're going to see that Jesus is going to give instructions to his disciples about how to suffer such an ordeal because they're just about to do that. So if you would, turn in your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Now the events surrounding Matthew 10 are built around Jesus calling his 12 disciples to go on a mission. They're going on mission and they're bringing the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus says, we looked at this last week, they're bringing this message to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So they're going specifically, they're they're going to start with Uh, the sheep of Israel, so the Jews that are in the northern region of Galilee, that's where they're going to start. Now, this is going to expand to the entire world before too long, but this is the beginning of this mission. And he tells them that they're going to go and preach to these Jews, these lost sheep of Israel. They're going to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's going to be more behind that message, obviously, as we've seen. But that's what they're going with. And as they go, they're not going to take anything with them. We looked at that last week. They're not allowed to take uh, two tunics and lots of shoes and extra money in their pockets. They're not going to load themselves up with all these provisions for their journey. God is going to provide. The Lord is going to provide everything that they need. And this, of course, then leaves them vulnerable. They don't have any place to go except for a house that will take them in. They don't have any extra food unless the person who feeds them. They don't have extra clothes, so someone's got to clothe them. They're not allowed to bring weapons with them so they can't defend themselves. They're totally and utterly vulnerable, which is what the Lord addresses in the very next verse. So Matthew chapter 10, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. Jesus is telling his disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before the governors and kings for my name's sake, or for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against their parents and and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And so as we look at this this morning, this passage, Jesus is speaking really to several times in several different courses of events. This is a very interesting passage and it continues and we're going to see it continue when the scope of it is starting to broaden here. It's very clear at this point uh, that this is addressing their current missionary journey. He's basically giving them their instructions, their marching orders, and he's going to send them out. So he is addressing this issue right now. But it quickly becomes clear when you read the text, however, that he's, he's actually seeing past their current venture. He's looking into the future, even, in these directions. 
to their future as missionaries after Pentecost, and even the future persecution of the early church. Down through the ages, even, we see this applicable to the persecutions experienced by all who are belonging to Christ, even prior to His second coming, which has not yet taken place. So, there's a lot encompassed in this passage. These truths are applicable generation after generation after generation. And you're going to see that this becomes even more increasingly so as we progress in the narrative. But in this passage here, verses 16 to 23, Jesus is giving instructions to his followers as to how they are to conduct themselves. But again, the principles are applicable for us today, which is what I want to do. So in exploring the passage in context, we're also going to derive principles for us to apply even to ourselves in our own context. And so I'm titling this message this morning, How to Survive Persecution. How to Survive Persecution. And we're going to learn four key principles. We'll start with the first one here. Look at verse 16. Jesus told the disciples, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Here we see the twin virtues of wisdom and innocence. It's built, excuse me, (coughs) pardon me, it's built on the, the sentiments in verses 14 and 15 about the cities that reject the message of the gospel. That's what he says in verses 14 and 15. He says, whoever does not receive you, when you go into these, all these different towns, whoever does not receive you or heed your words, go out of that house or out of that city, shake the dust from your feet. And then he says this, truly I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, villages and towns and cities that God destroyed by fire, It's better for them in the end than for these towns that reject the gospel from your lips. So he's building this exhortation on this truth in verses 14 and 15 of the rejection of the gospel. He tells the disciples that he's sending them out to these hostile cities and he's sending them as sheep in the midst of wolves. We've seen that sheep is a metaphor. We see this all throughout the Gospels, even beyond the Gospels. In in these places in Scripture, believers, Christian believers, are likened to sheep. There's lots of reasons for this. If you ever want to read a good book on this, uh, there's a book by Philip Keller called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And it's an exposition of Psalm 23, but he works through this concept of Christians as sheep and draws a lot of connections to his own experience as a shepherd in the fields of Canada. But anyway, we're likened to sheep here. And one of the reasons that we are likened to sheep is because of the commonality that we have, namely that sheep are dirty, defenseless, And frankly, they're stupid. Now, I wouldn't say that about a person, but sheep, I'm sorry, they're lacking sense in every possible way. I could, well, I'm not going to get into it. Just Google stupid sheep and you'll just see all kinds of fun videos to watch with your kids. Just the insane things that they do. And we laugh and we say, oh, wow, what a crazy sheep. But the Bible calls us sheep. The Lord calls us sheep for good reason. Because we're dirty. We have lots of sins that weigh us down and we struggle in terms of purity and cleanliness. We can't take care of ourselves. We're defenseless. I mean, apart from just the grace of God, I mean, we have, we have no natural defenses apart from our minds and whatever we can do. But really, we don't have, we don't have, we need a defender. And we're lacking in wisdom. We are not generally, I mean, even though you could be the smartest person in the world, but 
You always kind of joke at the, the idiot savant, the smartest person in the room who can't figure out how to tie a shoe. I mean, this, 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 we, we lack just wisdom in general, the application of knowledge and, and intelligence. And so sheep need the care and protection of a shepherd, and so do we. And so many, many times, and it's not meant to be derogatory, Jesus, I believe, calls us sheep in a very loving, compassionate way because he is our shepherd. John, read John 10. He's our good shepherd. Read Psalm 23. He's the shepherd who loves us and cares for us. But again, believers, he says, they're sent out in the midst of wolves. Wolves. Only one other place in Matthew do we read a reference to wolves, and it comes in Matthew 7.15, talking about false teachers. False teachers who are wolves and who are poising themselves to devour the flock. Elsewhere in John 10, 12, Jesus teaches that wolves are those who seek to scatter and devour the flock. Satan loves to send wolves into sheepfolds, into congregations to scatter them. Over and over again, I just, I'm impressed over and over with the sense of urgency and of the dire uh, sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? I did this last week. My brain doesn't want to connect words. Just the nature of our ministry here, it just seems like there's a target on the back of this church right now where there's just so many things that are going on, things that are seen, things that are unseen. But certainly, the enemy would love nothing more than to divide this congregation up and send us running for the hills. Speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20.29, Paul warns that after he's going to depart, he tells this church in Ephesus, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. They're going to attempt to destroy the church when I leave, Paul says. However, there is a measure of comfort in this verse in Matthew 10. I want you to look again at this in verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, And in the Greek, the I, we believe, is emphatic. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The comfort here is that we're not being scattered and left to our own devices. Jesus is the one sending them. There's comfort in the fact that you and I have been sent. Now, certainly in the context, we're talking about the disciples. But anybody who is sent on mission for Christ is being sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the one who sends out, get this, his defenseless sheep out into the world in the midst of wolves, which means that he is the one who's going to have to guard us and protect us. Even now, I mean, right now, we're, we're sent out in the midst of wolves. Those who would seek to devour and destroy. Don't we read in Psalm 23 that it is, it is He, the Lord God, who has prepared us a table in the presence of our enemies? So God is the one who goes before us. And i got to tell you, when in my humanness, when I consider all that's going on in the world, in my humanness, I begin to panic. And I think, oh man, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to my family? What's going to happen to our nation? And then I remember the infrustratable sovereign will of God. That if we're going to survive, it's going to be because He wants us to survive. And again, the church is the only institution that God has promised to build. He has not promised to preserve nations, but He has promised to preserve and grow 
his church. And then he says, Jesus in Matthew 16, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So again, my human nature fears and worries. I'm sure yours does on some occasion. But we, are, we can be encouraged by the fact that Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out. I'm the one who, do, who does this. Even though we are sent out among wolves, it is the Lord who sends us. But there is a command to the sheep. He commands something here in light of the savage wolves around us. Look at what he says to the disciples here. So, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. If sheep go out and they behave like sheep, they're going to get killed and eaten by wolves. A sheep without a shepherd is a dangerous thing. So he tells them they are not to think like sheep. Don't think like sheep, but like wolves. Way back in excuse me, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we read that the serpent, the snake, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. Snakes are known for their craftiness even today and for their cunning. You don't see very many stupid or foolish snakes. Generally speaking, snakes are pretty, pretty savvy. They're careful and they're cautious and they're devious. Don't Google that, because then you're really going to freak out. You'll be scared for a month. But I'll tell you, snakes are very smart with where they go, how they position themselves, what they do. They're very savvy. And Jesus then for, he says, Christians are to be shrewd, prudent, or wise, or crafty, or sensible. Christians, we are to be shrewd. Don't be non-thinking. Don't be naive, reactionary. It's so easy because we want to be gracious that we just fall headlong into foolishness and folly. We follow the course of the world sort of blindly and say, well, you know, there's nothing bad going on out there. It's probably fine. Oh, they, I'm sure they don't mean any harm at all to the church of God. But Christ says, no, be like snakes in this way. Be like snakes in terms of your shrewdness and your prudence. However, snakes also have a negative reputation, don't they? I mean, again, back in Genesis 3, that's not a good snake in the garden. It's the bad snake in the garden. And so, while snakes in the wild aren't particularly evil, I mean, when you see a snake crawling around, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not inherently wicked. But the connotation is that someone who behaves like a snake is acting wickedly. Just read Matthew chapter uh, 12. Jesus refers to the Pharisees as snakes. Matthew 23, he calls them a brood of vipers, a nest of little snakes. And so while we must possess the wisdom and the cunning of snakes, in our conduct, in our conduct, he says, we must also be as innocent as doves. Doves have a reputation for being graceful and pure and harmless. No one has ever been attacked and maimed by a dove, at least not that I'm aware of, right? Now, pigeons are different. Pigeons are awful. They're the rats of the sky. Don't, don't. But doves are wonderful, aren't they? In the same way, he says, we are to be gentle and harmless. Gentle and harmless. So, believers, we must have the mind of a snake with the heart of a dove. You see that? So even though we're sheep, and we are sheep to the Lord, we're to conduct ourselves in a different way. 
See, the principles laid out in Scripture. Romans 16, 19, Paul tells the church, he says to this, to them, I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. He tells the church, be smart, guys. And I would say the same thing to you as well. As you live, as you work, as you go, be smart, be wise in how you engage out there. At your jobs, with whatever you do, with your friends, with your family, with the lost, everybody, every single situation, you've got to be smart. You've got to be wise. You have to be shrewd. But then he says, be innocent in what is evil. Even though you think and can anticipate what the world is doing, don't fall in with them. We have to be shrewd. I think we lose that sometimes. Because the world doesn't want us to think. If that's not become evident to you in the last two years, 18 months, then it's pretty obvious that we are not to, to think and be reasoning. You reason in the public square and it's shut down, cancels. We're not to be thinking people, but Christ tells us, no, you need to be shrewd, be wise in how you think. But in terms of what is evil, be innocent. Be innocent. Elsewhere, Ephesians 5.15, we are to be careful how we walk, and he says, not as unwise men, but as wise. Be wise Colossians 4, 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. You meet people who don't know Christ, love them, be kind, be gracious, but think. Be wise in how you deal with the world. Because again, the disciples, we'll go back to the context here, the disciples are going to need to know how to behave in a hostile society. Not just for the sake of the next few weeks, but for the next couple of decades. These very same men and more are going to endure an immense amount of challenges and persecutions. They're going to go through a lot in the next couple of years. And Jesus is preparing them. This is just the tip of the spear. That's what Jesus has in mind here. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Now these very same disciples will eventually be handed over. We don't have any course to believe that they were scourged this early on in the mission. They weren't appearing before governors and Gentiles this early in the mission. So it's very clear from the context that Jesus is talking even farther out than this. But he says, it's going to happen to you guys, so brace yourself. You've got to be ready for this. Um, he says later on they're going to go to the Jewish courts. Many of them are going to be whipped and scourged. We see that it happens to them. You read Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are whipped and scourged and they're sent out and they're persecuted for the cause of Christ. Paul even himself reports in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 24. He says, five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. 39. They were not allowed to whip their own people more than 40 times. And so they brought Paul right to the edge of the law. 39 times, they ha it happened five times to him. Can you imagine seeing the scars on Paul's back at the end of his life? Forget whatever else is wrong with him. But that's just from the Jews. That's not even the Gentiles that have done things to him. But he tells them, they're going to be brought up before various governors and kings, again, Gentile rulers. But as they did, they weren't going to be persecuted because they were being uh, attacked personally. Nobody out there had any issue with them personally. I'm sure some of them were really nice guys and otherwise would have had lots of friends in the Jew and Gentile world. But the reason they're being persecuted is because of their identification with Jesus Christ. That's why he says, this is for my sake 
that you're being persecuted for my sake. However, their persecution would no doubt be both as a testimony against their persecutors who maligned innocent men, but also as a testimony to others for the cause of Christ. Persecution does something pretty remarkable. When you think about it logically, you're thinking, how in the world would would a Christian standing in the public square being beaten with rods or burned at the stake, how in the world does that engender and encourage faith in other people? Frankly, I don't know in terms of mechanics of how that works, but there's something about a person who under duress, under persecution, under the threat of death, will lose everything and forsake everything but cling to Christ in their last moments. There's something powerful about that. It it bolsters faith. You read the history, you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you read the Martyrs of the English Reformation. I mean, some of those stories are incredibly powerful stories. Stories of men and women together being burned and being beheaded by wicked kings and rulers and their last breath, they're uttering the most beautiful, heart-stirring prayers of devotion to God, even praying for their persecutors. It's just remarkable. Persecution does something as a testimony for the cause of Christ. Yet Jesus instructs them, when you're opposed, he says, look, be wise, but be innocent. So wisdom and innocence. The second principle is what I'm calling this morning spiritual confidence. Spiritual confidence. Look at where I'm getting this from. Verses 19 and 20. He says, When they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Jesus instructs the disciples not to worry when they get arrested. And even today, there are Christians around the world who are arrested for their faith as close as pastors in Canada. It's unbelievable. Being arrested and put on trial for their faith. Again, they're not arrested for wrongdoing for themselves, but for the cause of Christ. And while they're handed over, he says, do not worry. Don't worry about what you're going to say to them. Now, there's no way to really rehearse a defense. I mean... If you were to do that, if you were to spend your time thinking to yourself, okay, if I ever get arrested, here's what I'm going to say to this objection, this thing, and this thing. and You know, you just can't do that. The best thing you can do is know the Word of God and pray that God will help you. You can't anticipate what you're going to say in the face of the situation, but he says, don't worry about that. If they come to your house and arrest you for the faith or for whatever other reason they concoct, masking some other reason, which is really just for your faith. He says, don't worry. He says, why? He says, because it will be given to you in that day, in that hour, what you're going to say. I'll give you the words to say. Again, this isn't an excuse for not knowing Scripture. Rather, this is confidence in Christ, knowing that He is able to help you. You're entrusting yourself to God for provision. See, not only is God going to give the disciples what they need for food and clothing and lodging, He's also giving them words. God is providing for the disciples every single thing they need for mission, even down to what they're going to speak. This is remarkable, my friends. Again, 
So many people today are thinking to themselves and say, I hear it all the time, well, I don't know. I love Jesus, but I just don't know if I could be the kind of person who go and do X, Y, Z. I could never be a missionary or be a pastor or plan a church or be in spiritual leadership or start this ministry or serve in this capacity or whatever excuse we come up with. Because we think to ourselves, I just don't have what it takes. My friends, God desires a willing and teachable spirit. God gives you what you need. I've told you this story countless times about how I never thought I'd be doing this for for a job. I never thought I would be a minister of the gospel for a living. Never crossed my mind for a second. But here we go. How does God do this? Verse 20. See, it's for it is not you who speak. You're not the one talking. When they arrest you and they put you in cuffs and they berate you, you're not the one who's going to speak. Verse 20, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. This is incredibly encouraging. Incredibly encouraging. It's actually remarkable. This doctrine is remarkable truth. And they would have had no idea at all what he was talking about, which, which is just crazy to me. They would have been looking at each other, what, what is he? What? The Spirit of God is going to speak in me and through me? God's, what are you talking about? Later in John chapter 14, Jesus tells the disciples that while he's going to go away, he says, I'm going to ask my Father to give you a helper, another helper. He calls him the Spirit of truth. And he says, the world cannot receive him because it does not know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. This is remarkable. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's talking about the future indwelling of the Spirit of God into Christian believers at Pentecost and beyond. This is a special provision, certainly for the apostles in terms of the Spirit giving them what to say in the moment in terms of uh, revelation. John 16, 13, the Spirit is going to guide you into all truth, he says. He's going to take everything that was taught by Jesus and disclose it to them. Now, we understand theologically, biblically, textually, that he's talking about the Spirit of God actually working through the process of inspiration. I mean, these men were given the doctrine of Christ to give to the church. They're apostles for a reason. We don't get the same kind of revelation given to our minds the way that they did. But regardless of that, we still have the Spirit of God informing and convicting us and transforming our minds using the Word of God. And you do speak on behalf of God through the Scriptures. That He actually enlightens and enlivens your mind to work through you. But they had a unique connection because the Spirit was inspiring truth for them. But again, even for us, when a person's born again and the Spirit of God indwells them and begins to influence their heart and mind, we become a new person, a new creation. We call it regeneration, being born again from the inside out. When a person comes to Christ, Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. Otherwise, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. Something has to take place inside of you. God has to do a rebirth from the inside out. But when this happens and the Spirit of God comes in, guess what? He's working with you. And He's convicting you of of your sins. And He's encouraging you in truth. Romans 8 even says that He knows how to pray for you. Even when you have no idea what to say. Ever get to that point when you're about to pray to God and you're you're just overwhelmed and flabbergasted? I just don't... I don't even know what to pray for, Lord. 
I just don't got it today. Like, I don't even know what to ask for. I just feel like a mess. I, just, I know I need you, but I just can't verbalize. You think God knows what you need before you ask? You think he knows what exactly your problem is and how to minister to you? He says, so the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. That's not some other fantastical thing. That's the Spirit of God ministering and speaking to the Father on your behalf in a way that you just can't utter. It's incredibly encouraging. But the Scripture, He appeals to our conscience and He uses the Scripture that we've studied and He brings it to mind. You'll be amazed at the times in your life, if you haven't already experienced this, where God will use Scripture that's been hidden in your heart and in your mind. He will bring it to bear in the moment that you need it and you don't even know where it came from. And that way, when believers are pressed to respond while representing Christ, He really does speak through them. I've often believed that God gives martyrs and those who are persecuted for their faith, He gives them a special grace in those moments. Because if you or I were to try to bear up under some kind of a torture, persecution, we wouldn't know what to do. But in those moments, God gives these beloved saints grace and mercy to endure what they're about to endure. Again, we see this demonstrated in the the testimonies of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. We see this with Paul in his defense before the Gentile governors, Festus and Felix and Agrippa. We've seen it throughout church history. We see it today. Those who don't fear what they are to say because they know that they have spiritual confidence in Christ. God, I have no idea what I'm going to say in the next couple minutes, but I know that you are going to give me the words to speak. Those who've gone before judges, even today, they get to the courtroom, they don't have any, any notes in front of them, and they just speak from the heart. They speak in Christ through His Word, and they can say what they have to say. And so God, in the midst of persecution, gives us spiritual confidence. The next principle taught by Jesus here is that of endurance. Number three, endurance. See, in verse 21, Jesus gives perhaps one of the most shocking and disheartening statements Certainly of the discourse, but no less in his ministry. Look at verse 21. He says this. I'm going to ponder this with me. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. That I don't understand. Just from a human mind, how we could get to that place How, forget brother to brother, that's bad enough. But a father his own child and a beloved child to their parents would turn them over. And again, while this is happening to the disciples, sadly this has become a reality for many in church history. The seriousness of division between Christians and non-Christians at times becomes so toxic that even family members begin turning on each other. Jesus says more about this later on in the text, by the way, as we're going to see. But this kind of thing occurs more readily in cultures that are more totalitarian. When we talk about communist regimes, this is the kind of seedbed that produces this. Societies that become so antagonistic to Christianity and Christian morality that they brainwash their citizens to serve the state as God at the expense and the detriment of their own flesh and blood. It is a vindictive and awful evil that happens throughout the course of history. 
This happened in Nazi Germany. This happened in communist Russia. It happens in many spheres in China today. And I'll tell you, this kind of evil, this incipient evil, is working its way even into our culture as we speak. People being turned against each other. A culture so twisted and evil that brother will betray brother to death. Even worse, the betrayal of a father to his own child. What would drive and motivate a parent, a father, to turn his child in for death? So evil. And vice versa, children against their own parents. And you might say, well, that sounds a little bit extreme. Is that even possible? I was reading this week after World War II, the Hungarians were occupied by the Russians. And Christians in that country were forbidden to practice Christianity. They were not allowed to read their Bible or pray or worship at church. And so this occupying force came in and started telling the church what they could and could not do. And the Russians would go and they would question the children. They would bring them in and question the kids, young kids. And they would say things like, well, do your parents read the Bible to you at home? And the child, if they said, yes, my parents read the Bible to me at home, the police would come to their homes in the middle of the night and haul the parents away. Some of the older children were so convinced by state-run propaganda, they actually turned their own parents into the state for Christianity. This is the danger, my friends, of totalitarianism and communist regimes. And that's not a political statement. It's not. But there is, an insip- a, a, there is a threat of evil. There are world forces at work. Whenever politics and, and world powers and governments, whenever they wade into Christian morality, whenever they wade into the realm of the church, it no longer becomes politics, it becomes the church. God owns morality, he owns the church, he owns all institutions, he owns governments. And as soon as we become persecuted and cannot verbalize or stand for Christian truth, that's when they wade into our territory and we have the right to speak. But this is evil to the core. But here's the thing, my friends, and we can get all fired up about this thing, but this is what Jesus said was going to happen. We look around and we oh, what's going on? Jesus told us this is going to happen. He warned us 2,000 years ago. And he's warned every single generation since. And every generation has to deal with this issue in their own context, in their own terms. And we're going to face this and it's going to increase until he comes back. So don't be surprised, Peter says, of the fiery trial around you as though something strange were happening. Verse 22, he says, You will be hated by all because of my name. People get mad at me because I'm a Christian. Welcome to Christianity. Jesus said this is going to happen. Again, hatred of the church arises from hatred for Christ. It's not you they're mad at, truthfully, unless you give them a reason to be mad at you. But Jesus said in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, the world hates you. I'll tell you, evangelicals have this problem of chasing after the world, of popularity. We we want to be 
welcomed in into certain realms of worldly culture. And we like to say, well, we're not worldly, but I really want to be respected in the academy. I really want to be seen as not being a bigot or not being hateful or spiteful. The world tells us that we're a bunch of judgmental jerks, and I don't want to be seen that way. Well, what do you think they said of Jesus? They called him small-minded and bigoted. They called him a drunkard. They called him a, all kinds of things. Read the history of the early church, the things that they called them that weren't true. Someone calls you a name, if it's not true, then don't take it. If someone calls you something and it is true, then repent. But who cares what the world thinks of you in terms of Christianity? You're just a bunch of nasty, legalistic fundamentalists. Knock your socks off. Call me whatever you want. As long as we're faithful to Christ. But Jesus said this is going to happen. Further amplified, when we consider Paul's words in Colossians 1.24, that the sufferings he's experiencing are simply an exercise in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In other words, the abuse that we would otherwise see being applied to Christ, the things that the world would want to do to Christ, are then visited upon the church. We're persecuted. They look at us and they see him and they want to kill him even more. They want to, they want to persecute even further and so they turn their guns on us. That's what Paul's talking about. Even more sobering here is the realization that out of all the troubles described in verses 16 to 22, and you read about this, being handed over in the courts, scourged in the synagogues, appearing before governors and kings, being hated, being turned over, all of these things that Jesus tells the disciples are going to happen to them, all of this was first encountered by Christ himself. He told them nothing that wasn't going to happen to him first. Before the disciples could feel even the sting of the whip, Christ was handed over to the courts. He was scourged in the synagogues. He was standing before Gentile governors. He was betrayed by his own Jewish brothers. He was hated without cause. He was delivered over to death. Why? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he go and give his life to pay the penalty for sins? To pay for this rotten, sinful world that we live in? To pay for the sins, your sins and my sins? The evil, the wicked? To save people from the judgment of God? That's why he went. But in the same way the Lord is persecuted, his followers are also going to be persecuted. But, He says in verse 22, he adds an encouragement. Look at this. But the one who has endured to the end is the one who will be saved. Now, a lot of scholars have wrestled with this verse. What does this verse mean? The one who endures to the end will be saved? What is he talking about? Does this this mean that, that our salvation is somehow conditional? That the only way to go to heaven is to survive and endure persecution? That's not what this verse is teaching at all. It contradicts every other gospel verse in the Bible. So that's not what's going on. Rather, here it is. Endurance is an evidence that you have been saved. When you're saved, when you belong to Christ, when you're in the palm of His hand, when you persevere in your faith because of God's grace, 
when you endure to the end, it is evidence. And yes, we're going to struggle in this life, my friends. And there's going to be times when people come to you and they ask you to give an answer for your faith and you waffle and you waver and you go home and you say, why did I say that? Why did I do that? That was, that was, and you apologize to God. Why didn't I, I didn't stand for you, God. Why did I say the wrong thing? Why did I wimp out? You're going to struggle and I'm going to struggle. But the testimony of all true believers is that God will sustain you until the end of your life. That when you die, you die in Christ. The Greek word translated endured has the sense of a patient bearing with, a standing firm. In the face of opposition and persecution, we don't lose our head in panic. We plod along wisely and innocently and confidently in Christ and we endure Knowing that not only has He called us and sent us, but He's going to help us. He's going to defend us. He's going to sustain us. One of the most heartbreaking and heartwarming stories of persecution, it's not on my notes, I might forget small details here, but Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer was an English reformer. And he was called upon to renounce his faith. And he was given a document that he had to sign his name to. If he didn't sign his name, he would be exiled and ostracized and possibly even die. And so many of his other friends, you read the stories of Latimer and Ridley and all these other martyrs for the faith, all of his friends were being killed and burned at the stake, but they stuck this document in front of him. They said, here, sign your name here and you won't, you won't be persecuted. And this man of conviction, this man of God, wrestled and he took the pen And he signed his name, renouncing certain convictions of his faith. And it bothered him. And it tore him up inside. And on the surface, it looked like he had just renounced everything he had stood for. This is a man who had trained kings in the faith. But at the end of his life, he was called to account. And he basically tore up his confession he had signed. And he said, no, I, I renounce that. I go back on what I said. I, I'm going to stand for the truth. And they pressed him, and they pressed him, and they pressed him. And finally, they said, this is it. And Thomas Cranmer was led away, and he was tied to a stake, and they lit the fires. And Cranmer stood there, and he stuck out the hand that had signed so that the flames would hit that hand first. And he held his hand there until he died. And he gave profession of faith that even though he wavered and he waffled at the time when it was most important to keep the faith, the Lord sustained him to the end. It's remarkable power in that. But I'll tell you, my friends, you and I, we're going to struggle. We waffle. Oh, Lord, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Ah, I was wrong. You can repent. You can turn and you can say, Lord, help me, sustain me. The Bible says the one who endures to the end, that's the one who's saved. And so hold on to your profession. Hold on to your faith. Yes, you might waver now, but don't stop. Don't give up. Keep on believing what is true of the gospel and turn your heart to the Lord. I want to look at our last principle here. This leads us from endurance finally to the end here. This last principle of surviving persecution. It's what I'm calling, just based on the text, Uh, Really, flexibility, if you will. 
number four. Look at verse 23. He says, whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, verse 23 drops us back more into the immediate context for a moment. Again, he's telling the disciples, the twelve, to go out to all these cities. And according to Mark, he's paired them up two by two. He's going to send them out to all these cities and villages and towns. And he says, when they persecute you in that city, don't stick around and just keep on making it bad for yourself. Don't be gluttons for punishment here. When it gets bad, flee to the next city. Just go. You don't have to stand there and just endure all of this terrible treatment. Don't die in the city. If they turn their back on the gospel, go to the next. Remember in verse 15, verse 15 he says, if, you, if you're facing opposition, shake off the dust from your feet. Just keep on going. There comes a point when a person just will not listen. Now, I'm not saying give up on your family and friends. But when there's a wall of opposition, at a certain point, you've got to just trust the sovereignty of God and say, Lord, I'm going to move on. Someone else can lead them to Christ. You be faithful where you are, but trust the promises and the sovereignty of God. But he says here, flee to the next city. Brothers and sisters, we are never to seek persecution or to taunt our opponents in order to put on a show. And, And you hear about this kind of thing all the time. And I always sort of cringe a bit when I hear, and it's small town pastors, we're notable for this. Now, there's a reason we don't have a marquee sign in the front with I don't put little jokes and blurbs on it like, you know, and no, no shame to those guys who do it. But I, I'm always surprised that when someone puts a very uh, sort of startling or political or just an embattled statement on their sign and people in town get angry and they say, oh, we're being persecuted. No, you're not. Take your sign down, man. Let people stumble over the gospel, not your silly thing that you're going to put on your church sign. That's just one example. But pastors have lost their jobs over the church sign. Let them stumble over the truth. Not foolishness. Don't seek persecution and seek being taunted by the world. Be, be careful what you put on social media. Oh, I'm being persecuted. No, you're not. Take down your post if it's that much of an issue. Guard your language. Be, be careful what you say. Be smart. Be shrewd. Be innocent. If they come for you, then you're being persecuted for your faith and then there's opportunity to flee. If you can't flee, then you stand, and yes, you'll be persecuted. But the principle here is you've got to be able to, to move. You've got to be flexible in some of this. A couple years ago, a friend of mine and I wrote a book on those people, the American Puritans, who fled persecution, went all the way to Holland, and all the way here. They could have stayed in England and died. King James I says, I'm going to I'm going to make them conform or harry them out of the land. Well, guess what? He wasn't planning on driving them out. He actually wanted to imprison them until they conformed. But they didn't want to do that. So they fled. They left. There's coming a day, my friends, we might not have that luxury. There's there's no more Plymouths out there. So who knows? But this is a viable thing. Jesus says, look, if persecution comes and there's a chance to flee, flee. If there's a way to escape, then escape. Not only does it preserve our life and our freedom for the moment, but it also gives opportunity for us to continue to minister the gospel elsewhere. So we are to be flexible in how we go. But then in the very next breath here in verse 23, this is very interesting. Jesus fast forwards really in a split second. He does this a lot in Scripture. 
I'm just thinking about Isaiah 61 when he quotes that in, I think it's Luke chapter 4. He literally quotes half a verse and says, This has been fulfilled in your hearing, but the second half of the verse is actually a future promise. So Jesus, in his quick thinking, in his his very metered and careful approach to Scripture, he's fast-forwarding in verse 23, not just from the immediate moment, but to the end of days. He says, For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. The Son of Man is a messianic title for Jesus Christ. Jesus is essentially saying that the gospel mission, along with persecution, will continue to go about the entire earth and it's going to continue until he comes again. We're not going to stop being on mission and we're not going to stop being persecuted until he returns. But as long as we're here, we are to endure trials on behalf of the name of Christ. And as we do, as we endure for His sake, believers, we are to endure with wisdom and innocence. Be wise in how you think. Be innocent in how you conduct yourself. Be shrewd. Be innocent. We also are to have spiritual confidence. Not freak out, not worry, not be all anxious about what's going on, but to know that when we are called to speak, that God will use His Word and speak through us. He will give you what you need to say. Again, that's not an excuse to not prepare yourself in the Word of God, but don't be anxious. Don't worry. We are to endure patiently, my friends. The Bible says that we will endure to the end. And then be flexible as God directs your path. The future might not be what you think it's going to be. I don't know what God's going to do. People ask me all the time, what do you think is happening right now? I've got a theory. It's pretty nuts. But I've got theories about what's going on. But guess what? I don't talk about it. Because frankly, it doesn't really matter what I think. It doesn't really matter. Because in the end, God is sovereign over all of this. And He tends to do things that we don't expect. We were making plans two years ago. Well, we're going to do this, this, and this in 2020. No, you're not. I was going to go on vacation. (laughs) Boom. I had a a big, huge 2020 release for my book. This is the 400th anniversary of the pilgrims. No, it's gone. That's so small, isn't it? We make plans. We have have all, all this stuff figured out. God, he tells Israel, I I think it's Habakkuk, he says, I'm doing something in your day that if I were to told you, you wouldn't believe it. People say, oh, he's doing something amazing. He's talking about judgment in that context. I'm doing something, I'm going to stop the world dead in its tracks. Really, God, you're going to do that? Oh, yeah, watch me. Did he not do that? Stop and change everything we know. Now, you can talk about why this is happening, who's doing what, all this other stuff. Let me tell you, even though there is wicked and evil afoot amongst all the world events, there is a sovereign God over all of it. Nothing is happening in this world and in this country apart from the sovereignty of God. And if He is delivering us over, He is delivering us over. But guess what? You and I will endure if we're in Christ. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about what's going on. And if we are to endure persecution, guess what? He's given us a way to do it. He's helped us already. So keep your head. Don't be anxious. Trust in Him. He tells us, as He told the disciples, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. 
But he is our good shepherd, is he not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. God, we look around at the world and it's so easy for us as sheep to tremble and to fear. It's so easy for us to be anxious and say, what's going to happen? What about my life? What about my future? But God, you are in control. You are our God. You are sovereign. And your providential will is infrustratable. Not a king or a governor or a president can lift a finger without your say-so. And so, Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. And as we go, Lord, and as we proceed, I pray that you would minister this truth to us. And as we go, Lord, to embolden us to preach the gospel to those who don't know Christ. Father, there are so many people that are hurting, and I know you know that. So many lost sheep that are just yearning to be returned to the flock. And I pray, Lord, that you would use us, use this church, Harvest, here to be, to be the arbiters of truth, to be the ones who go and bring this good news to those who are hurting. And Lord, to welcome them into this assembly, to love them, to minister to them, Lord. Father, we need help. The harvest here is plentiful. The laborers are few, Lord. But please, use this church. Use our testimony. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to You. And God, we cannot but be grateful for the salvation that we have received in Christ. That no longer are we held accountable for the penalty, for the punishment of our sins, because Christ has paid for the sins on the cross. And those who have repented and turned away from their life of sin and trusted in Jesus, you save them, you deliver, and you cause them to endure to the end. What a marvelous promise, Lord God. We thank you for this sacrifice of Christ. And Father, as we turn our minds and our hearts toward the table this morning, I pray that we would examine ourselves and count the cost and consider what this means. We thank you for your love and for your gospel. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.